Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. As you now know, from time to time I'll take a break from profiling individual warbirds to do an episode that drills down deeper to explain an element that might be taken for granted or misunderstood. Today's episode is going to be one of those. Now, in this podcast, I've never adhered much to a deadline. I try to get them out every two to three weeks, but when life gets in the way, it can be longer. But this time, I've got a deadline. You see, today's episode is a request from young Holden Silver of Richmond, Virginia, who's been clearly badly bitten by the warbird bug and has a birthday coming up. This coming weekend, he's turning seven. I'll post a pic of Holden taken at an air show. He's wearing a t-shirt with a four-engine bomber on it. Could be a B-29. And he's holding a balsa airplane model. And he's got a startled expression on his face because a P-51 Mustang's Merlin engine is just being fired up about 30 feet away from him. So he's a big Warbird fan. And his dad, Brett, asked if I could do an episode for him on what the Bombardier actually did. You see, there's a family connection for this question. Young Holden's great-grandfather on his mother's side served in that role on a B-17 of the 510th Bomb Squadron, 351st Bomb Group in the Mighty 8th Air Force. Like many of the guys who came back from that conflict, he never said much about his time in the service, and the family had had little idea of what he had actually done. So let's look into some details about the job of the World War II Bombardier. Happy birthday, Holden, and I hope you enjoy your episode. Now, the first thing that needs to be said is that dropping and hitting anything from a moving airplane in flight is not easy. I have just a little experience in this. Back when I was a flight instructor at Cedars Airport, Charlie Sierra Sierra 3, for the pilots out there listening, Laurentide Aviation, our flight school, had a summer fly-in barbecue when private owners would fly in, park their airplanes on the grass, and eat burgers and later have a bonfire. One of the fun things that we did during the day was a water balloon dropping competition. We chalked a big target on one end of the runway and instructors would take up their students with a supply of water balloons to try to score a hit on the target. Now we were flying Cessna 152s, which are not fast, and we were not flying high, maybe a couple hundred feet up as we did our low pass over the runway, and it was still not easy. Lining up on the target was not that bad. After all, we had plenty of practice lining up on the runway anyway for landing, but things were made more complicated with a slight crosswind. The aircraft had to be crabbed slightly into the wind to keep the plane going down the center line towards the target, and as soon as the water balloon was released, it could drift sideways with the wind you'd also have to estimate when to drop the balloon out the window. Of course, you had to drop before you got to the target because the balloon would continue going forward with the, albeit modest, speed of the Cessna 152. On the other hand, you can't drop too early because the drag of the air will immediately affect the balloon, slowing it down. Now this, in a nutshell, is the fundamental problem that needed to be solved by the bombardier. However, multiplied and complicated by tens of thousands of feet of altitude and hundreds of miles per hour in speed. 
Also, add in more complex winds, which affect your calculations, clouds and smoke, or darkness of night that obscure your visibility, and the distraction of people shooting at you, and there you have the challenge of level precision bombing. If you think about it, before the advent of complex computers and guided munitions, it's surprising that they were able to hit anything at all. That's why in so many cases they tried other ways of getting the bomb on the target. Dive bombing was a technique designed to make aiming easier. Basically, you dive at the target, and when you're lined up, release and pull up. The SBD Dauntless and the Stuka were both examples of these aircraft. The German Luftwaffe was especially fond of dive bombing and tried to build this capability into most of their aircraft. But eventually you run into a limit when it comes to larger bomb loads and airplane sizes. To survive the heavy G pullout of a dive bombing attack, a large bomber would need to be reinforced so much so as to be, you know, impractical. So, that's why the large, multi-engine, medium and heavy bombers relied mostly on level bombing. And in order to survive that, when you've got flak gunners shooting at you, they had to go high. So the first question that needs to be answered is, why were they trying to do high-level strategic bombing anyway? And if you haven't listened to it already, my episode entitled Big Bombers talks about exactly this concept. If you haven't partaken yet, I suggest that you go ahead and take a listen, and we'll wait for you here. Okay, so now that you're back, let's talk about how they solved the problem of getting those bombs on the target. First, you need a bomb site. At the altitudes and speeds we're talking about, the human brain just isn't capable of doing all the mental math needed to calculate when and where to drop the bombs. If you've seen a few uh, war movies, you may be thinking that this bomb site wasn't much more than just some kind of telescope looking straight down, of course, with a big black X etched on the glass. Well, you'd be wrong. These devices were a lot more complicated than that. I'm going to talk about two of them today that were the staple bomb sites of the Allies, the British Mark 14 and the American Norden. The US was working on the Norden before the outbreak of the war, and it was one complicated and expensive machine. How expensive? When it comes to American weapon systems developed for the Second World War, it was number three in the ranking of expense. Number one was the B-29 bomber, which cost three billion in 1940 dollars. Number two, at 1.9 billion, was the Manhattan Project to develop the atomic bomb. The Norden cost 1.5 billion. Notice that all three of these pricey items were related. You needed the B-29, equipped with a Norden to deliver the A-bomb. Now the Norden was the Cadillac of all bomb sites. It was made up of about 2,000 individual parts and was connected directly to the airplane's autopilot. Information such as altitude, heading, and airspeed were fed automatically to a mechanical computer while a crewman was needed to enter such data as the terminal velocity of the bomb and to deal with wind drift and to identify and select the target. 
The site itself was stabilized by gyroscopes so that the movement of the airplane wouldn't affect the site picture that the bomb aimer was seeing. The British needed a better bomb site too, and early on they were interested in the Norden. But to the Americans, the Norden was such a secret weapon that they couldn't even trust their closest allies with it. And so they refused to share it, and so the British were on their own to come up with their own bomb site. Ironically, spies had already sent the plans of the Norden to the Germans in 1938, so the U.S. shouldn't have been so worried about sharing it with the Brits. But the Brits came up with the Mark 14. It had many of the same features of the Norden, except that it wasn't connected to the autopilot. So the bombardier, or as the Brits called it, the bomb aimer, would have to tell the pilot to go right or left. It was a little smaller and more simple and theoretically less accurate, but as the Brits were area bombing at night, the decreased accuracy was less of a problem. The Brits weren't able to build all the sites they needed, so some were actually built in the U.S. by Sperry. Both sites required a dedicated crewman to operate the devices during the bomb run, and as the bomb sites were so complicated, there was extensive training to get them ready to do their job. As I said, the Brits called this crewman a bomb aimer, and the U.S. used the term bombardier, which was a word borrowed from artillery for the guy who aims the cannon. How were these guys chosen for their job? The usual story is that they were all trying out to be pilots, and the selection process shunted some into navigator, flight engineer, and bomb aiming roles. To think of one job being more important than the other is pretty simplistic. When it comes to the actual purpose of a bomber, which is delivering bombs onto a target, they were all critical. A pilot is useless if the navigator gets them lost, and the whole process is a waste of time if they get all the way to the target and the bombardier misses it. So, once a crewman was selected for bomb aiming, his training could begin. Many British bomb aimers were actually sent to Canada as part of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan because, just like the pilots, they needed lots of wide-open, safe skies to learn their trade. U.S. bombardiers actually had to swear an oath before beginning. I'll post a pic of this process, which looks somewhat like a religious ceremony, with a crowd of future bombardiers lined up in front of a table on which sits a Norden bombsite looking like a sacred talisman. The crewmen all have their right hands up and are swearing, mindful of the secret trust about to be placed in me by my commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, by whose direction I have been chosen for bombardier training, and mindful of the fact that I am about to become the guardian of one of my country's most priceless military assets, the American, the American bomb site. I do here, in the presence of Almighty God, swear by the bombardier's code of honor to keep inviolate the secrecy of all and any confidential information revealed to me, and further to uphold the honor and integrity of the American Air Forces, if need be, with my life itself. As Marty McFly would have said in Back to the Future, that's heavy. Training took between 12 and 18 weeks and started with theory and moved on to training devices such as a motorized wheeled tower-type bombsite simulator. 
The bombardier trainee would ride on top and operate the sight, looking down at a model of the landscape with a target and practice operating the complicated sight and learning how to eliminate simulated wind drift and aiming at the target. When they dropped their pretend bombs, a pencil would mark where they had hit. Later on, they would move into actual aircraft, such as the twin-engine Beach AT-11, or Avro Anson, where they would practice dropping bombs, albeit those only armed with sand, on physical targets. Their object was always the same, to maintain an acceptable circular error. This was the average distance from the center of the target. As the actual bomb run was a relatively short period of time during a full mission, the bomb aimer was also trained to operate the guns and cross-trained to step in for navigation duties, flight engineering, or even flying if needed. There was a constant tension. The desire to train the bombardiers for more skills versus the need to just produce sufficient bomb aimers. The U.S. had always had the intention to train their crew as bombardier navigators. And eventually, when they had sufficient numbers, they were able to train more in this way. But even as both nations struggled to keep up with training bombardiers and using the complicated bomb sites, the role was already changing. One enormous fault with both bomb sites was that no matter how accurate they were or how highly trained the operators were, they both relied on being able to see the target visually. Our European listeners will be able to report that the skies of Europe are often covered by cloud, making the whole thing useless. Also, with the Brits choosing to raid at night over a blacked-out continent, again it was difficult to see something to hit. So both nations developed and added radar devices to their aircraft that would be able to see buildings and coastlines through clouds or at night. As not every aircraft could be equipped with this fancy new equipment, both countries created specifically trained and more experienced crews that could find and do the aiming for the others. Originally, the radar devices were separate from the bomb sites, but later ways were found to feed the radar images into the sites. The British had a pathfinder force that would seek out the target in the dark and mark it with flares that the following bomber stream would aim at instead. A master bomber would orbit nearby to orchestrate the whole thing, dictating the dropping of more flares if the aiming point needed to be adjusted. As for the US, they eventually went to a lead bomber system, where the bomber in the front would do the aiming for the whole formation. Those highly trained bombardiers in the other planes were reduced to button pushers watching and pickling their loads when the lead bomber dropped theirs. The visual aiming bombardier was a bit of a historical flash in the pan. Post-war, the use of radar, jet planes with even higher speeds, and nuclear weapons made the role redundant. Finally and eventually, guided weapons did the job much better than any human being ever could. But wait, that's the story of bombardiers in general. But what was it like for Holden's great-grandfather, 2nd Lieutenant Apicella, or Apicella, I'm not sure, but let's call him Joseph from this point on, to fly an actual mission? All I've got to go by now are the records available online, some general knowledge, and my imagination. But let's use these and try to imagine what it was like for Holden's great-grandfather on his first mission.
I'm guessing here, but because doing anything for the first time is usually memorable, it's probably one of the flights that he remembered the most. His first mission was on Friday the 30th of March 1945. His unit, the 510th Bomb Squadron of the 351st Bomb Group, was stationed at Polbrook, which had been an RAF airfield that had been transferred to the USAAF in 1942. In 1943, Clark Gable, the famous actor from Gone with the Wind, was actually stationed in Polbrook and flew five combat missions. But on the 30th of March 1945, Joseph probably wasn't thinking of Clark Gable. He was going to fly his first mission, and they were going to hit docks and naval installations in Bremen, Germany. They had eaten their breakfast at 7 o'clock and been briefed at 8 o'clock. They were to start their engines at 10.25 and take off sometime between 10.55 and 11.50. Their aircraft, B-17 44-6610, was also known as Feedem. That's like feed them, but Feedem. I don't know if it had nose art or what the origin of the name was. I do know that this aircraft had flown against the enemy many times. It had already flown more than 40 combat missions and must have been fairly well worn in and probably had a heady scent of fuel and oil and other assorted odors when the crew climbed in. It had been loaded with 2,300 gallons of gasoline and 12 500-pound general-purpose bombs. Was Joseph scared or apprehensive or nervous? I have no idea of the man's character, but the human thing would be to be keyed up. Yes, the war was nearing its end, and the Luftwaffe was mainly a spent force, but there would still be flak, and even if nobody shot at them at all, they were still going to fly in an airplane full of explosive, up to an altitude hostile to human life, they were expected to be on oxygen for five hours, and in a formation of many airplanes. Bumping into one another wasn't unusual and would be just as deadly as could be mechanical problems such as engine failures. And even though Joseph wasn't the lead bombardier and so he wouldn't be responsible for the aiming, he was still responsible for dropping the bombs at the right time and would still want to do his job properly and not let down his crew. Much of his crew was also new and this was also their first mission, but their pilot, 2nd Lieutenant John Moraska, had flown many missions, and in fact had only a few more combat missions before finishing. That must have been reassuring. They took off and began assembling at an altitude of 16,500 feet, but before this was done, cloud cover forced the B-17s to climb to 21,500 feet to get above the clouds and assemble. Two aircraft turned back with runaway propellers, and two others, which were unneeded spares, returned to Polbrook before the rest of the formation headed across the English Channel. They crossed the enemy coast at 1327 near Leihoek, the Netherlands. Flying across the continent at 21,000 feet, the formation was contacted by the weather scouting force by radio to tell them that the target could be attacked visually but that the presence of a large cloud in the target area might make radar bombing necessary. When they reached the initial point of the bomb run, 
Cloud was obscuring the target area, so the bombardier in Colonel Carter's aircraft, which was just ahead of Joseph's B-17, used their radar equipment, known as H-2X, to line up on the target. Luckily enough, a break in the cloud 10 to 15 seconds before bombs away permitted the bombardier to identify the mean point of impact. When Colonel Carter's aircraft dropped their bombs, Joseph pickled his load too. During the bomb run, they encountered flak that was reported as moderate and accurate. On their way home, they had to divert for more flak. However, they didn't see any enemy fighters during the whole mission, although they did have P-51 little friends along, just in case. One B-17, 43-37900, lost three engines due to flak damage and was forced to land on the continent. All the crew survived, and they were back in action soon, although their aircraft was written off. The rest of the formation would cross back over England at 1706 near Cromer and landed about half an hour later at Polbrook. The damage assessment showed that the bombs of Joseph's squadron fell into the dock area of Bremen approximately half a mile northwest of the assigned mean point of impact with damage to dock installations, a large warehouse and the railroad tracks and sorting sidings that served the dockyard. Joseph must have been relieved that the first one was done and proud that he had done his bit for the war effort. He must have also wondered if the next one would go as well. The next one would be the very next day when they were going back to Germany with a different pilot and a different plane, but most of the crew was the same. He would fly a bunch of more missions, five of them in Fidem, and his last mission would also be in that aircraft on Sunday, the 15th of April, 1945. Feedham survived the war and went to the States to be what we would now call recycled. Joseph survived the war too and went home to resume a civilian life. It's surprising and shocking that almost nothing survives of the massive Polbrook Air Base where 2,000 personnel and four squadrons of B-17s had operated from. All that's left is a pyramid-shaped monument and some farm outbuildings that had once been military facilities. So Holden, I hope you enjoyed your episode on what your great-grandpa did during the war. And I also hope that you never lose your curiosity for these airplanes, these airmen, and what they did. And if you stay curious and keep on learning, you may just end up being the one teaching others about these airplanes one day. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird 17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.